Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Parise of Copper Beach Financial Group. On our last podcast, we started a two-parter, two different podcasts about seven common objections families have when utilizing trusts in their estate planning. And we covered some of the first objections and kind of the groundwork and the foundation of what is a trust and why do families consider trusts. So if you have not heard that, please go back and listen to that first podcast. Uh, But you're welcome to enjoy this one right now. Good morning, John and Michael. How are you? Morning, Eric. Good morning, Eric. How you doing? I am very, very well. I know that we covered a lot in that last podcast, and this one may be a little bit shorter, which is just fine. But I think we have four objections to cover today. Do we? Do we not? Yes. We do have four. Might not be that short, but we'll see. All right. Yeah. Let's 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 get into it and find out. So, where are we starting today? Well, the first one we'll start with today is is actually the the fourth one, uh, the fourth objection that we typically get, and it's one of my favorites to discuss, at least with families, and and that's that f- trusts foster resentment amongst descendants. And, and typically this, this goes something like this. Well, if I put, if I take my assets that I own and I place them in trust for my children or my grandchildren, and, and when I pass away and they see that these assets are going to be held in trust, they, they're going to think that, you know, oh, mom and dad didn't trust me, or mm-hmm. I didn't know how to manage money, or I'm not smart, or, you know, now I have to go through this third party trustee or this other person in order to access the family's wealth. That's typically the, how the story will go with, with many of the families when we talk about, about this objection. They're trying to control me from beyond the grave. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a term we, that's a term we often use. Yeah. Yeah, That would be my son's objection. He'd be like, Oh, still trying to tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Not really just trying to help you out, bud. But yeah. Right. Right. Well, that's, and that's the key thing. You hit the nail on the head. And we talked a lot about this in our early podcast on uh, asset protection, but if that's a major goal of the family and, and a lot of these, these asset protection risks that families face, trust can be a really, really key part in protecting against that. And so this objection really, at least in terms of being able to overcome it, really involves a lot of more on the education side of what Copper Beach does, things like family meetings, things like uh, developing a family mission statement or a family constitution, all of these little tasks, if you will, or things that families do with with a family is really a way to sort of overcome this objection because if you don't do some of these things, that is a real risk. If you don't communicate mm-hmm. why a trust is useful and the reasons why mom and dad in this case are, are forming a trust, then now you're leaving that open for your children or your descendants to figure that out on their own. And very often the, these trust documents are, are legal documents. There's not a whole lot of heart to them. And so they really are a set of instructions, as you pointed out, Eric, not as much of a, you know, a loving uh, sort of breathing document that, gotcha. that explains why they're being used. You said this is your favorite. Why is that? Well, I just think that it's, it's, a, it's my favorite because I, I really, it sort of comes full circle to a lot of what we do at Copper Beach and why it sort, sort of ties a lot of the pieces together. As I said, with, with the asset protection conversations, with our family meetings, which we had an earlier podcast on, these are all ways when we work with families 
uh, most of the time on most family meetings, one of the agenda items is reviewing the trusts, how they work, why they're put in place. And a lot of that is an an ongoing, almost reinforcing um, uh, type of uh, project that we do with families because uh, children in this case really need to understand and really mom and dad need to to be reminded as well as to why these trusts are put in place. Yeah, the other piece is, I'll jump in here, the other piece to this is really the makeup of the family. I mean, we've had many situations where mom and dad would say, listen, if I gave all that money to my son, Michael, he, he really would know what to do with it. He's smart, he, he's, he's frugal, or he's savvy about the business world. But if I gave it to my daughter, Laura, or Alicia, they might not be that ready for that. So I would need someone to guide them and give them direction through their life. Not that I don't trust them. It's that that I want to make sure that they get the right guidance. So the family issue, the family dynamic issue is, is important because some fa- some families have no problems giving their money to their kids outright. If there's not a legacy issue or if there's not a generational issue, mm-hmm. uh, we work in that world consistently. So getting to back to Michael's uh, points is it's a legacy issue why these assets also stay in trust. As long as the children know that they have access through that to that money for certain needs that they have through their lifetime, and there's no restriction other than they've got to go to a third party and they have to either ask for the money or it was written in the document that mom and dad said the kids can have the money for these particular reasons. So it's all customized. It's all part of that, as Michael's point was, all about that that communication understanding during these family meetings, how these trusts work, why they were put together, and how they have impact in, in the kids' lives. So let me ask you this. Do you do you think or do you see that this is received more as a – when you give the explanation, do you then become the bad guy in this scenario? This is why we advised you know, mom and dad to do this. Or do you believe that the kids have a better understanding of it to the point where they're like, you know what? I agree with this, that it should be in a trust because that's a great way to make sure things are taken care of. We were with a family yesterday. Um, one of our clients just passed away recently. So we met with the family yesterday outside of Boston. And when you meet these families after someone passes, their need to have all the information, all the data, and the understanding of how everything is going to operate it becomes very, very important. Mm. But at the end of the meeting yesterday, they all hugged us as we walked out the door. So the relationship with these families are important because they know that we have their best interests at heart and we'll spend all the time necessary to get them in a position to understand why uh, their father set the trust up the way they set you know, the way they were set up and what the the goal was. And that's really part of that dynamic of how you work with these families. I think to answer your question, Eric, I think it's more the latter. I think that after we've really done a deep dive in explaining to the children how a trust works, why it was put in place and and all the asset protection benefits and the management benefits that can come along with that, children really are have a, a really a positive outlook um, because of Clearly. they understand that this is not done or these these trusts weren't put in place from a standpoint of I don't trust you, but it's I want to protect you, I love you, mm-hmm. and that becomes more of the dialogue. And I think when you see that that transition happen, it's it's pretty powerful to to see. That's kind of why I, I like this one, at least talking about it. I call it my favorite objection because I think you know it's really you start off in one spot and you really come full circle. It's it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah, and I, I got to imagine that being a father and son team doing this and being able to present this together, that actually would be a huge advantage, you know, and, and just saying, hey, this is 
you know, I would have no problem with this. And from your end, Michael, I would have no problem with this because I understand the concept of it. And, and from John's end, it's, it's, yeah, this is something I want to do to protect my children and, and show them how much I love them. And I think that family would be able to say, okay, well, I mean, they're, they're, they're honest with each other and you know, they're, they're a great team. So something's working here. So, yeah, I mean, and, and ways in which it can go wrong, if you imagine a scenario and this probably happens all the time, unfortunately, but if you have, you know, in our case, if this family that, that, that we mentioned where the, the father just recently passed away, if they didn't have somebody like Copper Beach, as an example, sort of uh, helping and guiding the family through that, that process, you can imagine, oh, you know, mom and dad passed away. And if there was no intergenerational communication, all of a sudden, let's say the attorney now is involved yeah. in working with the kids and they call the kids up and they say, um, you know, little Dave, uh, here is the trust that your mom and dad put this in place. I am the trustee. Here are the rules around how you have access to the money. Here are my responsibilities. You know, it's a very, very cold. And all of a yeah. sudden the children go, well, wait a minute. I didn't know that this was happening. And now that's that resentment that can, can pop up. So you really have to sort of cut it off at the pass and really do that intergenerational communication ahead of time to really make it all work. Yeah, we're such an advocate with that, as, you, as you've heard in the previous podcast. We spent a lot of time communicating with the families and how they all operate together. That's fantastic. All right. Is there anything else with this objection that you want to cover or are we going to move on? No, let's move on. Let's move on to, right. uh, to number five here, which, which number five is feelings of unworthiness hmm. in beneficiaries. And this is a little bit of a uh, maybe a, a tricky one. And, and this is – it sort of takes – again, it gets back to the, the family educational process, but – there are circumstances out there where families, and you're talking about the really, really wealthy families out there that, you know, if you have, let's say, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that are passing down the generational line, if that, as an example, is invested, you know, reasonably well, there's the possibility for future generations to never have to work again. They can they could live off of the trust assets for the rest of their lives. And believe it or not, that can develop senses of unworthiness because now they ha they some of these beneficiaries lack this sense of personal accountability over the wealth. They don't have their own drive or their own passions to be able to, you know, develop wealth on their own. As an example, this is a really interesting dynamic. And again, I think the educational process can help avoid that a little bit. But that's what we're talking about from an objection standpoint. Is we often often see families say, I don't know if I really want to put this trust in place because I don't want my I don't want my children or my descendants to feel like they don't have a say or a stake in how this family wealth is being run. And that's the, that's one objection that we get into a decent amount. Which is where typically we get at the design of these trusts is having maybe potentially the children being co-trustees of the trust sometime in the future. Would they get involved with the the, the formal trustee to manage the assets of the trust? to developing, you know, um, access to the money in different creative ways or helping their kids with their education, whatever it might be, they, they become part of that transaction, which is very powerful. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's very interesting when you see everybody wants to really be self-sufficient, believe it or not, or most people want to be self-sufficient, I'll clarify that. And so that really, when you look at these trusts, and again, if you have a significant sum of financial capital in these trusts, really these beneficiaries want to feel like they're not, this trust isn't a hindrance to them, that it's empowering them, that it's helping improve their lives, not being a negative force in their lives. And uh, so that's what this objection is really designed to talk about. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's a whole psychological piece to that, that it, it's 
can't be easy to overcome in both the the parents and also the kids. And so again, just going right back to the family meeting issue, I know that that's where probably that bridge is gapped and, and they're kind of made to understand almost how this can be a positive or a negative, And then they have to make that decision on how they want to handle that. It has to be there. It has, it has yeah. to start there uh, from the beginning. And it's never too soon to get that communication to the kids, regardless of their, you know, they obviously they have to be old enough to understand the pieces and that's late teens, uh, early twenties. That's a good mm-hmm. starting point for a lot of the families that we speak to, but they should start to understand from the, from the earliest possible how these estates are, are set up for their benefit. And it, it's all good. It's not a, as Michael said, it's a love letter. It's a, it's a yeah. way to tell your kids, I, I, I'm, I'm going to protect you and you, you never have anything to worry about, but you're going to be responsible for certain pieces of the family legacy as it's coined to take this wealth and share it or develop, you know, uh, creating businesses or buying real estate or whatever it takes to continue to grow that wealth in these trusts. Family philanthropy becomes a really important Big way time. to sort mm-hmm. of combat this as well. You can think about being able to use some of the family wealth to help benefit the community around you. That's really where you could sort of uh, push back against that feeling of unworthiness because, again, a lot of beneficiaries now, if they are, are in charge or, or at least a part of that decision of helping the community around them, it, it combats that a little bit. So that's another key part. And I think that'll probably be a future podcast uh, on, on family philanthropy. That's a really cool topic. Yeah, that's good hours on that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. All right, what's next? Next is, uh, the, what are we on? Number six, I think. Yeah. This is trust lack uh, or, or foster a lack of work ethic in future generations. It actually kind of ties in mm. to uh, the last one that we just talked about. But pretty much every family that we work with is when they accumulate enough financial capital where their their children can theoretically not never work again. That really brings up these this uneasiness in them to make sure that again these trusts or or the family wealth in general is a positive force not a negative force and so a lot of people say you know I don't want to create these trusts that are going to you know let's say have a professional trustee that's going to manage the assets and they're you know they're competent they're going to be able to generate a, a, a good reasonable rate of return on on these assets a long period of time and you know it's my, my kids aren't going to have to work they're not going to have to do all of the things that I had to do, right? That's a typical conversation mm-hmm. in terms of creating the wealth that they've inherited. And so sometimes you'll see families say either, A, I'll give it all to charity or I'll give a, a large percentage to charity, which is can be a, a great thing to do. But sometimes they say, well, I'm just going to leave it out to the, leave this to my children outright. And you know what? If they spend it all, that's on them. And now they're, they're left to their own devices. And so that's really what we're talking about with this objection. Yeah, one of the one of the designs again in the trust document itself allows the children to uh, use the assets of the trust for certain purposes. So let's say, for example, I wanted to buy a piece of real estate for the trust as as a father. I could buy that real estate in the trust and let my son run that real estate, teach him how to run that real estate or run the assets of the trust as part of that development of the assets growth for his generation and beyond. So there's a lot of different ways you could put language in these documents to have the kids become part responsible of what goes on in the future of these trust assets. And it could be very powerful getting the kids involved at that level. But that starts again back to the family meetings, educating them on why these trusts were set up for what purpose. And here's your piece of the pie. So it, it teaches them 
that work ethic. It gets them involved with the assets. They're not sitting around waiting for a check from the trustee. They're involved. And also there's another piece that we design is you have loan structures to these trusts. You could say you want to buy a house. Okay, you could borrow money from the trust, but you have to pay it back. So you can't – it's not a freebie. So you have to pay it back plus interest like you would with a bank. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different ways we could be creative with getting that work ethic to the children but also have them enjoy the assets of the trust. So I really and, like the idea of purchasing the real estate and then having the the son or grandson or granddaughter yeah. daughter run that. I know there's a lot of different ideas out there. How do you educate your families on what – ideas would work within that trust and and how they how do you educate them on those and and help them to implement them we should we share options right in other words we we have so much we have so much experience in trust design through the years we've seen everything under the sun so we could sit and talk to you eric as an example say here's 15 ways you can have access to the trust and here's 14 more ways you can teach your kids how to become part responsible parties of the trust as co-trustees or help manage real estate or manage business assets or, or, or structural loan structures or, or a lot of different, a lot of the different asset structures you can, you can create for these kids using the trust assets. Yeah. And and the, the trust language very often can dictate if you will, or, or explain how the trustee can use the assets in the trust to benefit the beneficiaries. If they want to, as an example, take a loan from the trust, the trust could have that language in there, or maybe the trust document itself doesn't have that language, but there is a separate, we call legacy letter. I talked about that a little earlier. A legacy letter is really not a legal document per se, but it, it is more of a explanation, again, trying to put some feeling or some emotion into values, yeah, values into an otherwise, you know, kind of sterile legal document. But that really explains, here's how, how mom and dad, as an example, envision this trust being used for future generations of the family. We want to make it available. If you want to buy a house, as an example, well, we would encourage you to because we want to foster a sense of work ethic in you, we want we would encourage you to borrow from the trust as opposed to treating it like a piggy bank and, and being able to pay that back over a period of time so that you're generating that sense of stewardship, if you will, over the trust as opposed to it being my wealth, it becomes the family's wealth. So there's that whole dynamic that comes into it as well. So it's it's really, really, it's really interesting and it takes a lot of time. I mean, this is not something that is done within an hour meeting, believe it or not. And that's one of, I think, when we go through an estate planning design, we really spend a lot of time with families in terms of going through these various options because, you know, very often some of these documents can be almost more boilerplate and they sort of, here's here's a generic document that may not really fit what the client's trying to or the family's trying to accomplish. So we try to we try to spend a lot of time to do that up front. Yeah, we refer to that that transaction with the loan structure. It's called the velocity of money. That's, that's the term I use. Mm-hmm. For example, if you wanted to buy a $300,000 house, Eric, and you had a 30-year mortgage on that house, that house would cost you a lot more than the $300,000. It'd be closer to the $900,000 mm-hmm. when you paid your loan off. That's typically how people buy assets. So, th- so if you understand that basic principle, when you borrow money against your own trust and you pay your trust back, you're paying yourself back. So you get the velocity of money. And you're a part owner of that trust or your kids are. So it's a really interesting dialogue to teach families how to think about money differently. It's simple. Let's go to a bank and borrow money. Yeah, but you're going to give that bank a lot of money. Why don't you pay yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Develop a, that banking structure, we refer to that as the estate bank. In, in a family, that's their new bank and you pay yourself back. 
Well, you just set yourself up for a few more podcasts. You know that, right? Because I, yeah, I want I, I a series on you know <laughs> top 10 ways to teach your children and grandchildren a great work ethic utilizing a trust. Something to that effect, because it sounds like there's a ton of ideas, done of different ways to do it. But I would really like to dive deep into um, just using the real estate as an example, you know, what are we buying? Are we buying an apartment building? Are we buying a uh, business sure. complex? Are we buying a, you know, so on and so forth? And what all the the child or grandchild is going to learn through this experience? And I mean, that, that'd be amazing. I'd, I'd love to do a podcast on that. So yeah, they feel like they're involved with the wealth of the family and they feel responsibility. They, there's a learning curve involved. They know how to run real estate. They, they learn so much, especially if yeah. you start them younger, the younger, the better. That's what I always say. When you start them when they're young, they learn good habits. And that's really the whole dynamics of these family meetings as well. You keep, you keep Keep going back to these family meetings. I hope we express how important they are. Yeah. They are critical to family wealth transfer and wealth success. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, that just to add one more point, there's a wonderful book by a colleague of ours uh, named James Grubman. It's called Strangers in Paradise, and it's a, a very interesting theory that um, that he came up with in terms of families transitioning to a world of wealth. And he makes the analogy that f- families who are new to wealth are are almost in, like immigrants to a new land. Mm-hmm. And you see this a lot with immigrant cultures where they, you, you know, in the United States here, we obviously are a country full of immigrants and how those immigrants came, who came to this country adjusted to the life of the United States versus holding on to the, really the key values from their their native culture. And you see that that parallel in the world of wealth because you have this generational, let's say, push and pull where you have generation one who's created the wealth. They've, you know, came from nothing. Remember we talked about that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves proverb on an earlier podcast. They came from nothing. They created a really, really powerful business and they want to instill that same level of, of work ethic and, you know, creation in future generations where future generations don't have to do that. And mm-hmm. so that's that balancing act where, you know, maybe somewhere you have to meet somewhere in the middle. You don't want to go so far the other way that those values aren't passed on, that work ethic isn't passed yeah. on, but maybe you don't want to be so restrictive that the family can't enjoy the wealth that it has earned, you know, through its own hard work. So that's that's that dynamic that's again very interesting almost like a psychology that we work with a lot with families on how to best balance that. Yeah, fantastic. All right, what is our last objection? We're on number seven now. The last objection, uh, and we put it last because it's it's almost a culmination of all of these different dynamics that we talked about on the last podcast, and we've had perhaps it's almost more than any other issue. This this actually becomes somewhat of a stumbling block for a lot of families, mm-hmm. and that's okay. I'm going to create these trusts, and it has all these it has all these dynamics. There's a lot of responsibility for everyone involved. Who am I going to pick as a trustee to manage all this? Mm. I don't know if I have anybody, and I don't know if I want to put somebody in that that situation to, let's say, be the yes or no factor or to, to manage all this. I just I either a don't know anyone, or I don't want to put that person in that role. So I'm just not going to have a trust at all because I don't want to have, uh, you know, somebody in that role. And that's really the last objection that many families come up with. So what do we do about it? Well, you, there's there's a, several approaches. One, we like the personal trustee side, as an example, where there's a family member, family friend. It could be the sibling. It could be a, a child. It could be anybody the family deems qualified to handle that responsibility. But as Michael's point's well taken, that's a lot of burden on that particular uh, party. So mm-hmm. a lot of conversation has to have to be had with, with, with that particular person 
he, he or she would have to be willing to take that responsibility on. So that starts that process. But we like that personal trustee to start. But then you get into, well, hey, administer a large estate. Who's, who's going to be responsible for the paperwork and filing tax returns and all that? Because that's all part of this. So we typically combine the personal trustee with a corporate trustee, like a trust company, a local bank, an attorney, uh, you know, a, a, a CPA that has more of a financial background or legal background to help that particular uh, other trustee work the plan inside the trust as a trustee to develop the goals and the structure as they move forward with managing the trust assets and the distribution of those assets. Yeah, and there's no right or wrong answer to this decision. Um, I, I will say from our experience, again, going back to the family meeting, it's very important that if a family is going to utilize trust to pick a, a trustee, that that trustee really be involved in the family meetings as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's key because then they, the trustee now is on the same page with the rest of the family in terms of what the family's goals are or how the, the beneficiaries expect the trust to be run or, or hope that the trust is run. And so that's really a, a key part as well. There is no right answer to this, and that's why it's somewhat of a challenge. But there's a lot of different options that you could utilize. Again, as my dad said, using professional trustees, having a combination of professional and personal trustees, and that it, that all of those different options are available or on the table for families to consider to help solve that that uh, objection. Yeah, not to get in the, in the legal weeds, but basically how these trusts are looked at. The mom and dad, set, or mom or dad, set these trusts up, and those trusts are controlled by mom and dad as long as they're alive. So so these trusts only act when mom and dad pass away, which could be a very, very long time from now. There's also powers in the trust to replace a trustee. Again, these, these documents are flexible to ebb and flow with the needs of the family going forward. So for example, if I put a trustee in place here in, in New Jersey and Michael and the kids wanted to move to California, and it was burdensome to, to work with the trustee in the East Coast. They could let that trustee go and then hire another trustee on the West Coast where it's more convenient. So in these trust documents, and Michael as an attorney works with our clients' attorneys to develop the, the flexibility and exit strategies um, in these documents to make sure that, that anything could be done under the law uh, as it relates to these documents and, and accessing information or data. Right. And and a lot of this difficulty comes in from really from primary two things. One is how long is the trust going to be enforced for is you can have in certain states in the United States or other jurisdictions internationally, you can have trusts that go on for forever. And mm-hmm. so you'd look at that type of of longevity of a trust. How do you pick a trustee that's going to, you really can't pick one trustee unless it's a firm, as an example, or an institution to really manage that. Mm-hmm. So that's really where building that flexibility inside of the document to give the beneficiaries, in this case, the power to, to shift or move in a different direction really becomes important. Um, but the other issue is really the language of the trust as well. So if you have a trust that gives a lot of power, a lot of discretion to the trustee to make distributions out to beneficiaries or to make investments of the trust, that's really where the difficulty comes in because that's a lot of power to give to a trustee or trustees. And sometimes the family has difficulty figuring out or finding a party that could manage that. But if you have language that is a little bit more, let's say, mandatory where you know distributions are made regularly and that's that's mandatory that the trustee 
do that, then the trustee is really more of a, a facilitator or administrator. So maybe that doesn't become as much of an issue. So you're starting to see some of the dynamics that go into this, which mm-hmm. is why it takes sometimes a little bit longer than a, <laughs> than a lot of advisors uh, sometimes take in terms of designing this, because we want to make sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's with all these decisions and the family understands it, uh, so that they know that they're comfortable making the right decision. Well, the four objections that we covered today uh, all have one theme for me, and it's it's emotion, right? I mean, that's what seems to be all yes, part sir. of all four of these, right? The resentment, the un, uh, feelings of unworthiness, the possible lack of a work ethic, uh, and picking a trustee. I mean, that's that's a huge thing as well. All four of them are heavily emotional. And so if somebody's listening to this right now and says, man, that, that's my objection is the emotion that's involved. I, I really don't want to get into it because I don't want people to have hurt feelings. And I don't want to, you know, if I'm thinking about a trustee and it's one of my, one of my kids, then, you know, you've got resentment there and boy, this is a lot to, to talk about. Uh, but that's the bottom line is that they need to talk about it. So how do they reach you guys? If this has really sparked some interest in their mind and they just, they just want to take that step to explore what you're talking about. You can go to, you go to our website and you could reach out to us. Uh, Lauren uh, Giacone is our, family office concierge. So you can reach out to her. Uh, If you have any questions about that, we'd be more than happy to discuss that with you um, as the family and and hopefully answer any questions you have. Fantastic. Any closing thoughts for today's podcast? No, this was was great. I hope the last two were a deep enough dive into into some of these objections, but we're, we're generally more positive with trusts rather than negative with trusts. Obviously, every family is different. We mm-hmm. have some families that choose not to utilize trusts, but the vast majority of them do for the reasons that we, we've mentioned. And uh, so we hope this was you know educational for the listeners. And my last comment is you only have one chance to do this right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's that's so important to get this right the first time, put it in place and and uh, see the, the fruits of your labor go on and on and on instead of, you know, a disastrous ending to them. So I appreciate the time, guys. Thank you, Eric. Eric. You bet. And thank you all for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This will make it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services Incorporated, a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of APFS and 
APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolios Financial Services Incorporated APFS or American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated APA and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors.